Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the food that we've had tonight and for the opportunity to join with brothers and sisters um, in this special uh, occasion in the life of the church of being able to celebrate communion with one another uh, by which we remember the shed blood of Jesus, his broken body on our behalf that we can have salvation. Before we get to the table tonight, Lord, I pray that we would first feast upon your word and that you through it would minister to me as the preacher and to the congregation as they hear your word spoken, Lord. I pray that your spirit would be powerful as your word is given, Lord, to do in each of us those unique things that each of us need to have done, which only you as the great physician know how to treat. We ask, Father, that you would... Uh, Help us to be attentive to your spirit as you are our teacher tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there is a song by a, a, a Christian music artist that I like a lot um, called, uh, Bebo Norman is the artist. Early song of his is called, um, he, he wrote it after the death of a friend of his. She had committed suicide and... Um, as he was beginning to kind of grieve the loss of his friend, he wrote the song, and there's a line in this song, which I've always really kind of kept with me. I thought it was a really, it was just a good way of speaking. What he said, he said, the, the God that sometimes can't be found will wrap himself around you. The God that sometimes can't be found will wrap himself around you. And the reason why I've liked that so much is because I think it's a very realistic way of looking at the way that we handle grief and pain and tragedy and suffering in our lives. We have a theology, we have a biblical perspective on things which with our minds tells us that God is there. He promises us he will never leave us nor forsake us. So with our minds, we know that he has told us he is there. But with our emotions, with how we're responding to something, our emotions, our feelings tell us something different. He feels very, very distant. Or maybe he feels like he doesn't even exist at all. It's in those moments which I think probably every Christian will face. I know that every Christian in this room perhaps has not faced a moment like that, but if you will live long enough, you will face a moment like that, I think. But I do know that there are those in this room, in this congregation, in this county who have faced this sort of a circumstance. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. You have given him your life. You have followed him. But the circumstances that you now find yourself in or that you once found yourself in were so severe, so significant, that in the midst of those struggles, it was as if God was not there at all, and you were by yourself. You were all alone. In the recent history, the recent months of our church, we've seen a significant rise in this sort of thing, in tragedy. We've seen what's happened with the Kingsleys, and we've seen what the Kenningers are right now going through. We know the Helmses have a major surgery with May Lee tomorrow. I know the petites have struggled over issues pertaining to foster care and adoption with the uh, things going on in the legal system concerning their daughter. 
And I know that there are countless other stories in this, this room that probably have not been shared very broadly, but you're in the very midst of those types of things. And in your heart, you're just almost, where, where is God in all of this? Where is he? Is he there? I think this passage concerning Joseph really speaks to that sort of a thing. Because at the end of our passage, we see sort of the kernel, the heart, the central truth that God wants us to place over top of the story of Joseph. And it is this, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, in our circumstances, this is a Romans 8.28 mentality which says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. See, it's a promise in this that no matter what you're facing, if you are a called person, a person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is in that event working good out of it. Now, the problem with this is this, before we begin to see it in the life of Joseph, the problem is this. This is a promise that is out here. It's beyond you. It's in the future. You're not there yet. The promise is that it will work out for good. The idea is this, that you will one day be in a place where you can look back on your circumstances, those difficult circumstances that you may now be in. You will be able to look back on those circumstances and you'll be able to say, I can see where the handiwork of God was there. When I was in the midst of it, where were you, God? Where are you, God? But the reality was, it wasn't that he wrapped his arms around you in the future. It was that he was there all along, working his goodwill in your life. And when you get beyond it, maybe it's months, maybe it's years ahead of the time, you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to say, thank God that he worked it the way that he did so that now that he could produce in me the things that he's produced. That's the promise of Romans chapter 8, 28. That's the promise of Genesis chapters 37 through 50, that God is in your circumstances and he is working it for good. We're going to see in our passage tonight three ways. We're going to see through the story of Joseph tonight three ways in which God works our things for good. See, uh, God works good out of the evil done to his people. Second, God works good out of the evil done by his people. And third, God works works, uh, uh, God works the greatest good in his people out of the greatest evil done by his people. I'm going to repeat those one more time for us. God works good out of the evil done to his people. He works good out of the evil done by his people. And he works the greatest good in his people out of the greatest evil done by his people. How does he work good out of the evil done to his people? Where do we see this in the Joseph story? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the story of Joseph, Joseph was 17 years old. And as a 17-year-old boy, he was the most loved of his father's household. His dad was Jacob. Jacob loved him more than his brothers, and he favored him, and he treated him better than he did his brothers. He made them this awesome coat, which most translations say is a coat of many colors, but the, the chances are that it was a, a, more like a long coat that came down to his feet with long sleeves. It was a positional coat. It showed that he was of a place of significance in the family. And his brothers hated him for this. They despised him for this. As a matter of fact, they hated him so much that on a particular occasion, Joseph was sent to his brothers to see how they were doing with the flocks. And as he approached them, they began to plot against him. They began to decide, 
let's kill this dreamer. Let's kill this guy because Joseph, beyond even having this favor from his father, he had begun to have these dreams that had indicated that he was going to rule over his brothers and over his family, over his fathers. And his brothers, just this made him jealous and hateful towards him all the more. And so when he comes, they plot against him to kill him. But the oldest brother in the family, who has a little bit more scruples than the others, he decides, he says, guys, let's, let's not kill him right away. Let's throw him in this pit right here. So they, get, they follow their older brother's advice. They throw him in this pit. And while he's down there, Reuben, who wants to save him out of this situation, goes away for some reason. And while he's gone, there is in the distance, they spot a caravan that's coming. It's a caravan of Ishmaelites. And Judah, one of the brothers, turns to his other brothers and he says, why would we kill this guy when we can sell him into slavery and we can make money off of this situation? The other brothers, they think this is a good idea. So they go to the Ishmaelites. We want to sell to you this guy that we have here. 20 shekels. Deal is struck. And as we see later on in the passage, Joseph goes kicking and screaming, screaming for his brothers. Please don't do this to me. Please don't do this to me. I beg you. I beg you. Please don't do this to me. As chains are being thrown on his wrists and on his ankles. And he's thrown into some sort of a carriage. Perhaps gagged because he's screaming so much. Where's God in that? Not there, right? As time goes on, they make their way down to Egypt. And Joseph is sold to a very wealthy man by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar puts him into service. So here we have a 17-year-old boy forced into slavery in a foreign land, strangers, unknown language. He's terrified. Where's God in that? You have to realize that when we read the story of Joseph, we read it with the privilege of having little commentaries inserted. Joseph, in the midst of this, has no idea what's going on or what the outcome is going to be. He doesn't have a Bible to read. All he has is a simple trust that he needs to be faithful to his God, and he is. And so we see, where is God in this situation? Chapter 39, verse 2 tells us, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph was placed into a place of superiority in this house of Potiphar. Potiphar gave him the ability to rule over everything. He was only second to Potiphar himself. He had charge over everything because God had blessed what he had done. But the circumstances get a little worse after this. Because while he's a servant in Potiphar's house and he's in a good position now, it looks like God is blessing him, he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. Because Joseph was young, he was handsome, and he was successful. And so Potiphar's wife begins to try to seduce him. She begins to plead with him, come lay with me. Come have sex with me. And Joseph, being a righteous man, continues to deny her. No, I can't do this sin. You are my master's wife. This would be a horrible sin, not only against my master, but against my God himself. I will not do this. And then one day, they find themselves, Joseph doing his duties in the, his master's house, finds himself alone with Potiphar's wife. She tries to take advantage of him at this time, so she seizes him. She grabs him. Come, lay with me. She's being forceful with this. 
Joseph, being a righteous man, flees from her so much so that he rips himself out of his coat and runs away while she's still holding on to it. Well, she's scorned at this point. She's been denied. So, with this evidence in her hand, she begins to scream. And people begin to come, and then she accuses this Hebrew that Potiphar has brought into her house has made us a laughingstock. He has tried to rape me. And then Potiphar comes. What's going on? This Hebrew that you've brought into our house has tried to rape me. Potiphar is furious, furious with Joseph. So he grabs him up and throws him into prison. And not just a prison, not just any type of prison. This is a kingly dungeon that Joseph is thrown into. It's interesting that Potiphar does not execute Joseph at this point because his crime, his supposed crime, would have warranted an execution. It may have been the case that Potiphar was not convinced that his wife was telling the truth. But anyway, all the same, unjustly, Joseph finds himself yet again. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? I thought that I was supposed to rule over my brothers, supposed to be. And here I am, stuck in this dungeon. Here I am in slavery in Egypt. Things started going well, and now I'm in a dungeon. Where are you, God? And there he is few more years a couple of guys end up coming into the dungeon with him because they had offended the king a baker and a cupbearer they have a dream Joseph asks them to tell him the dream they tell him the dream and Joseph interprets it the interpretation on both parts is that three days are going to pass by and one of them the cupbearer will be restored to his place of position but the other one the baker will be executed And it comes to pass, just as Joseph had said. And Joseph asks the chief cupbearer, he says, I just ask you this much, when you get to Pharaoh, please remember me. Well, the cupbearer is not going to do anything to remind Pharaoh that he was in jail. And that he had done something. He's going to keep his mouth shut. So he says nothing of Joseph for two whole years. And then, the Pharaoh has a dream. He dreams uh, a dream of, of these cows, seven very fit and very strong and and fat cows come out of the Nile and they feed and then seven very pale and very gauntly cows come out and they eat these big fat cows and they're so, uh, as these uh, these pale and thin cows eat them, they don't get any fatter. And he's just like, what in the world is this dream about? So the chief cupbearer says, "I I do know a guy who might be able to interpret this for you. And he says, who is he? He says, he's Joseph. I was in prison with him. He interpreted our dreams. He says, go get him. So they bring Joseph up, and Joseph hears the dream, and he interprets it for him. There will be a famine. After, there will be seven years of famine that, uh, that follow seven years of plenty. Here's what you ought to do, Pharaoh. You ought to make a store supply of all of the grain that you can, and then, and then you'll be able to feed our population after the, the famine actually hits us. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that at this point in Joseph's life, he sets him up to be the second most powerful person in Egypt. And that's where we leave off with the, with the Joseph story. Where was God in all of this? We see that God was all the way through it orchestrating exactly how uh, Joseph's life was going to leave off. God was at work in Joseph. He was working the evil that was done to Joseph for good. And what was the good done? That Joseph would be in a place of superiority so that he could do for Egypt and for Canaan the things that needed to be done. But let's catch back up. Let's go back again. Let's look at these brothers. What about these brothers? What about them? What about uh, God's work in their life, those who have uh, done evil? Does God work good out of that which is done to them? 
In their case, whenever they sold Joseph into slavery, they, uh, um, they had to make an excuse to their dad. And so they take this coat of, this long coat that Jacob had given to Joseph, and they, they drag it through blood, and they give it back to Jacob, and they say, he's been slaughtered by an animal. He's been killed. He's been ripped to pieces. And Jacob goes into a season of intense mourning, intense pain, intense grief that lasts the duration of his entire life until he will again meet Joseph again. But God's going to be doing some peculiar things in their case because they are going to, when this famine hits, find themselves in Egypt again. And as the story picks up, they are in Egypt and they come before Joseph, who is now second in charge. Joseph is, at this point, about 39 years old. He had been in servitude under Potiphar and in the dungeon in Egypt for about 13 years. And then at the age of 30, he ascended to the place of superiority in Egypt. And then for nine years, he was there before his brothers ever did show up. So his brothers show up, and they respond exactly as they should. They bow before him, and they make their request, and they provide provide their money. And Joseph immediately recognizes them as his brothers. But his brothers, this has been 20 21, 22 years, his brothers don't identify him at all. Why would they? Imagine Joseph seated in this position. He's probably got the headdress that the Egyptians have, his eye makeup on like the Egyptians would have had. He would have looked very Egyptian. He would have been 20 years older than he was as a 17-year-old. He was much different. And so Joseph recognizes them. And Joseph does a very peculiar thing, which shows us that God is at work in these brothers. He's going to do something pretty remarkable which we find a difficult way of really understanding what's going on here. Joseph begins to speak harshly to them. And you'd think, if God's done this work in Joseph's life, and we're looking at this from a Christian perspective that he ought to show mercy to them, what is he doing here? Is he going for revenge? Is he going for vengeance? No, not at all. He's testing his brothers. We're going to see through this that Joseph is looking into his brothers to see if these are, in fact, the same brothers who cast him into slavery whenever he was 17 years old, or if they had, in fact, changed. So the text tells us that he began to speak harshly to them and accuse them of being spies. You're here to find the nakedness of our land. You're not here to get grain. You're here to try to take us over. The brothers, terrified at this point, this is the second most powerful person in the known world, is now accusing them of being spies. And so they're beginning to tremble. No, sir. No, sir. That's not what we're here to do at all. We're here just to get some grain and to be on our way. Tell me where you come from. Who's your dad? Do you have anybody left for you in Canaan? What about this little brother you speak of? What's his name? Benjamin, okay, here's the deal, guys. If you're not spies, I want you to uh, send one of your people back to Canaan, get Benjamin, and bring him back. Prove to me that you're not spies. I'm going to keep the rest of you in prison until then. Then he just up and throws them all in prison. For three days they're in prison, and you can imagine what's going through their mind. Oh, no, what in the world's going to happen? We can't bring Benjamin back. Uh, Who's going to go get Benjamin? Then they come out of prison, and uh, Joseph looks at them. He says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to send all of you back except for one. One of you will stay here. The rest of you go get Benjamin, bring him back. I want to see him. They have no idea who Joseph is. Joseph, meanwhile, secretly puts the money back in the sacks. And, uh, and he sends them on their way. You can understand what Joseph is doing here. He's putting them in a similar position as they put him in 20 years earlier. 
He's making it, he's giving them an escape route. You've got your money in your bag, your brother's in prison. We can go, we can be free, we can be done with this. Will they return to get Simeon? So they go, they leave, they, 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 they come to a resting point in their journey and they open up their sacks and they find that there is, uh, there's money still in there and it terrifies them. Oh no, he's going to thought we think we stole from him. They make their way back to their dad. They tell their dad, Jacob, what's going on. He wants us to bring Benjamin back with us. Jacob says, absolutely not. I've already lost one son. Now Simeon's gone because of you guys. You're not taking Benjamin. So they wait. Jacob has approximately 70 people that he has to, fi- to feed. They had about 10 donkeys that they could put this grain on. So you can imagine it lasted maybe two, three, four months. And the grain begins to run out. Jacob says, go back to Egypt and get us some more food. Judah, the same Judah who sold Joseph into slavery in the first place, steps up and he says, Dad, we can't go unless we take Benjamin with us. Jacob says, absolutely not, we can't do that. Judah says, then we're not going. He won't give us anything. Jacob says, Jacob begins to hem haul with this a bit more, and Judah says, I'll tell you what, my life is surety for Benjamin. There's been a change in Judah at this point. He's willing to give himself up for Benjamin's sake. Jacob finally agrees, and they take Benjamin with them, and then they get up there. And Joseph takes them into their house, and this scares them again. They think he's found out about the money that we, was in our satchels, and he's going to have us executed. And so uh, they get in there, but Jacob begins, or Jacob, Joseph begins feeding them lavishly from his king's table, begins giving Benjamin more than the rest of them. And they're just like, what in the world is going on? Then he gives them the grain that they need and supplies for their trip and sends them on their way, and Benjamin with them. And they're, 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 they're delighted. We're free. There's no problems here. But then... Then they stop because a steward comes searching them out and he finds, he says, he says someone has taken the king's cup. And they said, none of, none of us have taken the king's cup. And they say, let us search your satchels. And they look and they find that the uh, satchel of Benjamin has this cup in it. And uh, the brothers immediately interpret this as judgment on their treatment of Joseph. They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. It's interesting here that they take an event 22 odd years after the event of selling Joseph into slavery. And they interpret it as being a judgment from God on their sin in the past. What is God doing here? He is bringing out inside of them the reality of what they've done in the past so that he can bring them to a place of repentance. Joseph's actions here are, 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 are not for their repentance. Joseph is testing them. God is beneath this with his invisible hand, actually orchestrating in their lives the things that he wants to see accomplished. I see in Joseph here, Joseph's little way of sort of speaking harshly to them and then giving them money and then doing this weird stuff. He's testing them. He's doing some weird stuff. When I was in college, I did something similar to this. Uh, with, uh, I had a 91 white Honda Accord. It was beat to oblivion by the time I got a hold of it, like my van is today. And I, uh, I, um, I didn't really care what happened to it. And I was driving down Six Forks Road in Raleigh whenever a, uh, a car sideswiped me. She just came right over into me. And we uh, hurry, and we got off on the side of the shoulder, and um, 
and I uh, got out of my car, and I look, and this woman jumps out of her vehicle, and she's just hysterical. She's just hysterical. She's just screaming, and she's like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. My insurance, my husband, and she's saying all of this stuff, and I'm just like, all right, whatever. And I said, let's look at the car. And we walk around the side of my car, and I look at it, and I had already determined in my mind that I'm going to let her off the hook on this. And I look, and I say, well, you've uh, ripped off the molding right here, and um, there's a big dent right here, and I can see where your paint has scraped up along the side of my car right here, and it's going to be a lot of money, and, uh, you know, this sort of stuff. And, and she's just fretting, you know, the whole time, fretting over everything that I'm saying. Everything's calculating. What am I going to do? What's my husband going to say? And I looked over at her, and I said, I'll tell you what. And she said, what? And I said, why don't we forget about it? And she, uh, she just screamed and yelled. She was so delighted. See, what I was doing there is similar to what Joseph was doing with his brothers. I was bringing her to a place where she was going to be able to, uh, I wasn't testing, I was testing her to some degree to find out whether she was going to be taking responsibility for this. But even beyond that, I was bringing her to a place where she was going to see this as an enormous gift from me, my forgiveness of her. Joseph is doing the same thing with his brothers because at the end of this, when we get to uh, the end of our passage of uh, actually Genesis chapter 44, 45, Judah has come before Joseph at this point because Joseph is demanding Benjamin to be his servant. Benjamin comes up there with the rest of his brothers. They're terrified as to what's going to happen. And, uh, and Benjamin, or, or jo Judah comes up to Joseph and he says, Take me instead of Benjamin. Let me be your servant instead of Benjamin. At this, Joseph, Joseph's heart breaks, and we read that in chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with, who, with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will still be, there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Joseph completely forgives his brothers. Their sin has been exposed, and we see that the sin of his brothers, this evil in them, God even worked it for good. He exposes their sin, and now he's preserving life through their sinful action. It's interesting to us when we begin to think about this, how does this work out for us theologically? Romans 8.28, for God works all things together for the good of those who, call, who, who are called, for those who are loved. For God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Does God cause these evil things that these evil people do, does he cause them to happen and then use that for good? Or does God use the evil practices that these individuals do for good? Our theologies begin to get a little bit stressed out here because we don't know what is God actually doing. The promise is this. We may not understand what's going on underneath the surface here, but we know this much. I have a wristwatch on my hand. I did not create this wristwatch. 
Uh, Timex created this wristwatch. I did not, put, uh, did not buy the battery or did not put the battery in it. Walmart put the battery in it. And I didn't create the band or anything like that. But I'm still able to use this wristwatch. In the same way, God did not create evil, but he's able to use evil. The evil that is done to you and the evil that is done by you, he is able to use that for good. And for those who love him, the promise is he will use those evil things, circumstances done to you, circumstances brought out by you, he will use those for good. That's the promise in the scriptures. He will accomplish this. That is a wonderful hope for us. Because that means there is nothing that we face that God is not absolutely in the midst of working it out. That means there is nothing that you have done that disqualifies you from being used by God because God is using your particular choices, your particular sins, and he will use those to put you in the position exactly where he wants you to be. Your faithfulness, in Joseph's case, he used his faithfulness to put him in the position of second in Egypt. His brothers, he used their unfaithfulness to bring them to a place of repentance and then to a place of being able to save the lives of not only their whole families, but to then bring the entire people of Israel down to Egypt so that they could grow and amass into a people group in Egypt as God had designed. Which brings us to our last point. God works... Uh, God works... Uh, evil, the greatest evil, done by us for the greatest good done in us. And what is that greatest evil ever done? You see, God's design in bringing the people of Israel up in this land of Egypt to actually have this people group in the first place was so that through the people of Israel, he might bring us a greater Joseph. The story of Joseph is just an image. It's just a shadow of the true Joseph. His name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, we see, was slaughtered, he was killed by the greatest evil ever done. The murder of Jesus Christ was the worst thing, the greatest sin ever done in the history of mankind. And we see that the God who sometimes can't be found was not found by Jesus in the midst of his suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he knelt down and he prayed, my God, my God, please take this cup from me. The skies were silent as Jesus prayed. Why? So that he would go and there would be one person on the face of the earth for whom it would be said that God was actually against him. It's for you, but he would be against this one. And, uh, and he would die for our sins in that place. And he would take the iniquity of us all on his shoulders so that we might ultimately be forgiven, so that we might ultimately receive the good gift of God, so that we might ultimately have this grace shown to us that Joseph showed to his brothers. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and following give us a very cool biblical perspective as to exactly what took place. Peter is preaching here, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skipping on down to verse, um, verse 36. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the same message of Genesis chapter 50. It's just on a larger scale. Genesis chapter 50 says this. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Bebo Norman says this. The God who sometimes can't be found will wrap his arms around you. Acts chapter 2 says this. That, the, uh, that God delivered Jesus up according to his definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But how did he do this? He did so by having him crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In all of our circumstances and everything that we face, God is underneath it, in the midst of it, working it out for good. So the hope of this message is this. It's not a hope necessarily for today in the sense that the circumstances that you find yourself in will remain until God sees fit that they conclude. But when they conclude, you will be able to see in the circumstances that you have lived that God has been in it, working, providing, doing awesome, mysterious, invisible, secret things to bring you exactly to where you are so that you could receive his good gift. Sometimes God can't be found. Sometimes we look up to heaven and we pray, where are you, God? But the reality is he's there with us all along. And in time, he will wrap us back up where not only do we know it with our minds that he is with us, but we feel it with our hearts. He is with us. He is near us. He is providing for us. Let's pray.